0: On today's show, the epic battle between Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Cantley and what constitutes choking in the world of sports. Before we get there, I want to start this show where it always begins. One reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Saturday night, we have a clash of the Titans in college football. University of Georgia travels to Clemson. I am on Georgia. Plus three. Call me crazy. I believe this is the year of the bulldogs. Now, I have a hot take for you. Dogs in general, they are very, very bad, bad, bad beasts. They bark, they bite, they jump on you, they urinate everywhere, they defecate everywhere, they eat your laptop cords. In general, I am not a fan of dogs. However, Saturday night, dogs... Very, very good. Kirby Smart has built an incredible roster, as talented as any team in the nation. I believe they finally have their quarterback in JT Daniels that could lead them to the promised land in the SEC and the national title race. Maybe I will even find it in my heart to give a little love to Ugga, the bulldog, a real dog. Who knows? I hope that he can go to Clemson and Death Valley and treat those fans as poorly as dogs have treated me throughout my life. So, why gambling should be legal everywhere on planet earth because it will give you the only acceptable reason to cheer for a dog to do what dogs do bite bark and urinate in front of a large group of annoyed humans and now sports with chris (laughs) roll What constitutes choking? That is a term that is used a lot within the world of sports. And I've never fully understood how that term is used within the lexicon of sports. Because many times to me, it seems like that word is a substitute simply for losing. Uh, Which, when I talk about both those words, they seem like very, very different things. Uh, Losing, something that happens to literally everybody. For the vast majority of their pursuits within the athletic world, Uh, choking to me seems to be something very different. It's letting the pressure of the moment get to you and not feeling comfortable doing tasks that you can normally do and then not being able to perform in a manner that you trust yourself to perform in. I think sometimes the word choking is used simply for an athlete who didn't play up to their very highest level of capability. In the biggest possible moment, which again is something that I find to be strange because that is pretty much every athlete ever. The best version of an athlete very rarely manifests itself at all, much less in the Super Bowl or Stanley Cup Finals Game 7 or NBA Finals Game 7. If you rewind back before LeBron had won his first title, and this word was a word that was continually thrown around when it came to him and his career. Common criticism revolved around kind of that idea that LeBron was choking because he wasn't putting up 50 points and 15 rebounds and 10 assists in an elimination game, which we knew he was capable of doing. Uh, He didn't do it very much because that would be impossible. That would make you the greatest athlete ever in the history of all mankind. But instead, the Cavs would go in and would lose to the Magic in the Eastern Conference Finals or Boston Celtics and LeBron would put up 30 and 8 and 7. And because of that, people would go, ah, that's a choke. That's not as good as the best possible version of LeBron is. So rather than watching the game and, and saying, well, that was a player playing really well, but not his absolute peak performance. And, and now he's just lost to a team that seems like they have a better team. Rather than doing that, people just honed in on this work. No, choker. Uh, he's not going to be able to ever win a championship or do any of the things that we now know LeBron has done. NFL kickers are a very interesting subject when it comes to the term choking. And it's also a very interesting examination in how the actions of a kicker can reflect upon a teammate. Uh, I want to go back to 2006 NFL playoffs. Pittsburgh Steelers, they're playing the Colts. Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, Mike Vanderjack is the kicker for the Colts at the time. Very good kicker in his own right. He has a kick in the playoffs that can send the game to overtime. He hits just pretty much a total shank. Misses everything and Colts are going home. Now, there was debate at the time over whether this was a choke on his part or what was going on through his mind, but how this played out in a more interesting manner when it comes to the way that choking is used within the sports lexicon is that... That missed kick turned into a reflection on Peyton Manning, the quarterback, who a lot of people like to call a choker at the time because by the end of that year, you know, Tom Brady, he had three Super Bowls and Peyton Manning had zero. And yeah, your kicker missed a kick that could have sent you to overtime. You could have won there and you could have won the Super Bowl or whatever. The main point is you are also a choker because you lost two terms that don't necessarily mean the exact same thing. And you're also a choker because your kicker missed a kick that could have sent the game to overtime. Um, And as you think about the great field goal misses in the history of the NFL, the great field goal misses of all time, it's really hard to categorize what constitutes a choke versus what constitutes just a kicker missing a kick, and in turn, the team losing. Uh, whether it's Scott Norwood in the Super Bowl against the Giants, a kick that every Bills fan remembers, a kick that would have won that one Super Bowl that every Bills fan wanted at the time and wants even... More so now, in the midst of the four straight Super Bowl losses for the Bills, is it a choke? Is it just Scott Norwood missing a field goal? Um, how you define that probably says a lot about just how you approach this particular subject and whether losing and choking are synonymous terms. Uh, whether it's Gary Anderson missing a field goal for the Vikings against Atlanta, tail end of the '90s, Minnesota's 15 and one, they're playing against the Falcons. I believe that Minnesota was the best team in football that year. Gary Anderson, who has not missed a kick that entire season, has a field goal to put the Vikings up by 10 in the fourth quarter of that game. He misses it. Atlanta comes down, scores, goes into overtime, wins in overtime, goes on to lose against the Broncos in the Super Bowl. Is that a choke? Uh, Blair Walsh, another Minnesota Vikings kicker. Sorry to the Vikings fan for bringing up all of these Minnesota kicking moments, but he's got a kick few years back against the Seattle Seahawks in the playoffs. I'm watching it in a casino in Vegas and he's kicking to win the game inside the 10 yard line. It's such a gimme that it just seems reasonable to assume that it's going to go in. You don't even need to watch it. And instead I'm eating at a buffet and watching out of the corner of my eye. And the next thing I know, people are freaking out and I'm going, did he just miss that goal? Is that a choke? Who knows? Again, how you define a lot of these things, it probably says a lot about how you approach watching sports and whether or not you feel like losing and choking are two terms that go hand in hand with one another. Now I want to transition to the world of golf because golf is where the word choking becomes even more interesting because of how mental and how pressure packed the sport can actually be. These other sports that I'm mentioning, basketball, football, Uh, hockey, baseball, it's harder to define choking and it's harder to examine the word period within a sport where you're constantly moving and sweating. And a lot of the sport is based upon just physical movement and acting without thinking, putting your body on autopilot and trusting that it knows how to perform these tasks, right? That's why I think field goal kicking or free throw shooting, they're more interesting examinations because they're set piece, one person, there just thinking about what they have to do. That's when choking and pressure become much more interesting to somebody like me. Now, golf, where it's one brief moment of physical movement and then a long period of time of thinking and trying to manage pressure and thought, this is the most interesting sport to examine this word. Uh, if you look at the entire back nine of a tournament. It's just that, that experience that I just described. It's managing nerves. It's trying to control parts of your body while your heart is pounding out of your chest and trying to find some semblance of sanity within that entire process. Your body, you know how to do these things. I know how to make a full swing with a driver. I know how to hit a seven iron. I know how to chip. I know how to putt. But can I do all of those things when I have five minutes to think between a shot? And all I'm thinking about is I have the lead on Sunday. Can I get this ball into the hole in the shortest amount of time possible? That's a big, big, big pressure-packed moment. Uh, And especially on the putting green, where the smallest of muscle movements controls the line and the pace of your ball amidst that maelstrom of emotion and nerves and pressure. On the putting green, that's amplified tenfold because you're trying to just do a tiny little shoulder rock and follow through on that line. Meanwhile, your heart is pounding and your adrenaline's rushing and you're trying to calm your emotions and your thoughts to just say, do what you know how to do, do what you know how to do. So the most interesting and scintillating sporting event of the weekend, it was not Nebraska, Illinois, contrary to what I was talking about yesterday. That was the sporting event of sadness. The most interesting sporting event of the weekend was the BMW Championship and specifically the Sunday duel that ensued between Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Cantlay. One that I was riveted by. I didn't necessarily expect this to happen. I kind of get down on some of the FedEx playoff events that are set out by the PGA Tour. This one, it turned into a birdie fest and I'm kind of going, blah, all right, whatever. But the golf that ensued between these two players, I was all about. So within the world of golf, it's very easy to understand clutch play because you cannot back your way into winning a tournament against a field of 70 golfers. You literally have to hit shots. It's not like a sport where it's one versus one or it's a team versus a team and you can get into an NFL playoff game and only gain 200 yards, but the other team gifts you some fumbles and they miss field goals and you win by two points and you move on and say, we played atrociously. But we can advance because it was just us against them today. In golf, it's you against a field of the most talented individuals in the world. So you can't back your way into winning a tournament. You can't just sit there and doink around and say, everybody else, they fell out of the way. You have to go and continually make shots. So Patrick Cantley, who emerges victorious on Sunday after a six-hole playoff. Throughout the week and on Sunday, for him, this shot making was all about the putter. Just white hot flamethrower style performance from Cantley and his putter by the strokes gain putting metric, which the PGA tour started tracking in 2004. Cantley gains 14.58 strokes with his putter relative to the field, which is the most by any individual golfer at a 72 hole PGA tour event. Since that metric began being tracked uh, 17 years ago. So a historic putting performance from Cantley. And again, that was throughout the week, and it was really, really, really prominent on Sunday, especially as things were tightening up on the final holes of the back nine in regulation and within the playoff. So Cantley, he wins. He moves to number one in the FedEx Cup. He will start in the lead of the tour championship this week, the final FedEx playoff tour event. He secures his spot on Team USA for the Ryder Cup in September. For those of you who are interested in betting or rooting for Team USA in that particular format, you watch Patrick Cantlay and you watch that putter and you think about that transferred to match play and it's an all caps, just yes, please give me that. I'll be betting on that in a heartbeat. Maybe USA can kind of tap into that energy that Team Europe always seems to get from somebody like Ian Poulter, who just runs in bombs from all over planet Earth and in match play format, that is particularly demoralizing. So what's interesting about that idea is DeChambeau and Cantley were so far ahead of the field coming down the stretch that this amounted to kind of a match play type scenario. Yes, it's stroke play. And so they're battling one another stroke versus stroke, but they're in the same group and they know they don't have to worry about anybody but the other person. So it kind of turned into a similar vibe that match play brings. So within match play, when somebody's running in bombs from all over planet earth, It kind of sets up this strange off-kilter emotional experience for the person who's closer to the hole yet having to watch in putt after putt after putt, just be rolled in. So Cantley, what he's doing on Sunday, I want to read something that comes from the Associated Press. With the putter in his hand and ice in his veins, Cantley delivered one clutch putt after another to survive the final three holes of regulation and six tense holes of a sudden death playoff. He closed out his 6-under six 66 with an 8-foot par putt on the 16th, an 8-foot bogey putt on the 17th after a tee shot into the water, and a 20-foot birdie on the 18th to force a playoff. Twice on the 18th in the playoff, where DeChambeau had a 30-yard advantage off the tee, Cantlay made par putts from 6 feet and 7 feet. End quote. So again, going into this idea that it's very easy to understand clutch play in context of the winning golfer because you cannot back your way in Cantlay has moment after moment after moment. And, and again, all of them boil down to his putter. Um, in regulation, on that 18th hole, he has to drill a 20-footer to force a playoff. He does. To win the tournament on that exact same hole in the sixth hole of the playoff, Cantlay has to drill an 18-footer on a different line, different break, different read. He drills that, which ends up being the winning margin. It was truly just spectacular, riveting stuff. Amazing theater from this tournament that I didn't fully expect it from, so you tip your cat or you tip your hat to Can'tley you say that was a transcendent performance with your putter, and then we move to the other side of this duel and we start to examine Bryson D through the prism of what I started this entire show with this word choking and how people choose to define it. And whether or not it is simple as just being synonymous for losing. So Bryson DeChambeau is easily the most dislikable person in a sport filled with dislikable personalities, a true doofus. Anything he does, it's just, it's buffoonery at its highest level. Um, The temper tantrums, the aghastness at every shot that doesn't do exactly what he thinks it should be doing. Uh, Bryson is just the ongoing traveling circus. Everywhere he goes, it's just people jeering him from the crowd. It's people poking him with a stick and prodding him and making fun of all of these just doofus-style behaviors that Bryson seems to love indulging in, whether or not he knows that they are true doofus behaviors. So it might be because of that, or it could just be how we talk about losing and choking in general. But the word choke has been thrown around a lot with DeChambeau lately, including after the loss on Sunday. Now, this kind of stems back to the U.S. Open because Bryson has had two notable meltdowns within the last few months. First one occurs at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, a tournament that Bryson had won the prior go-round, and he makes the turn on the back nine on Sunday, tied for the lead. At that point, he hasn't made a bogey in 30 consecutive holes, And he goes on to shoot a 44 on that backside. He just plummets off the leaderboard. You don't even see him there when the tournament's over. John Rahm's on top. Bryson, who you knew was close, you're having to scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. And then finally you find him because he shot a 44 on the back down on Sunday. And a few weeks ago, uh, he goes into the St. Jude Invitational Memphis. He's there right at the top of the leaderboard all week. He's leading. Uh, He makes the turn there. Again, similar position to what was going on in the U.S. Open. And it's another total flame out. He shoots a 41 on the back nine there. He clears the way for Abe dancer to come out victorious of that tournament. Um, and again, he's nowhere near the top of the leaderboard by the time the tournament settles. Just throws everything away in those last nine holes. So you know within the world of golf that when one thing happens, you think about it a lot. I say this personally when it comes to my own game on the amateur circuit. You do something bad, it's always there within your mind. It's just how a sport that is so mental works. Uh, a sport that, yes, it's built upon physical performance, but the vast majority of the sport is about thinking and managing thought and emotion. So when something happens, it's just there. You think about it and you try to avoid uh, engaging with the idea and thinking, I am a choker because I shot a 44 and the back nine on the US Open on Sunday, right? So this word starts to get pushed out there with DeChambeau. Oh, maybe he's just, he's not built for these moments. Despite the the fact that he's already won a major, he's already won, I believe, eight PGA Tour events within his career. And to compound this, especially when you're watching him on Sunday at the BMW, it seems like he might be struggling with some sort of chipping yips or something that is preventing him from chipping in a manner that you would expect from a professional. Every time he has the opportunity around a green that he can putt, he's putting on Sunday. Uh, the one time he has a chip within a really pressure-packed moment, it's in regulation on 17. Cantley has flared one into the water. Seems like Bryson's gonna seize control of the tournament. He already has a one-shot lead. He hits it just short of the pin, but it's a pretty benign up and down to make par. At best, is going to make bogey, which would give Bryson a two-shot lead going into the final hole. And instead, he just completely stubs a chip out of the rough, misses the putt for par. Cantley makes a pretty incredible bogey to stay one down. He hits that big birdie on 18 to send it to a playoff. You know how the rest turns out. So, all of these things are compounding the back nine flameouts, the mayor, maybe or maybe not, struggles with the chipper, with the wedges, with the approach shots that Bryson continually seems to not fully know how far they're going. All of this stuff is building into. Is Bryson built for this moment? Is he going to win this tournament or is he going to fold, right? The really black and white terms that I think we like looking at how a sporting event is won or lost, which I usually do not view through that prism. I want to read from the Associated Press again. This comes uh, about DeChambeau and his performance. DeChambeau, who also closed with a 66 can pick just as many putts that cost him. His week featured a missed six-footer on the 18th for a chance at 59 on Friday. And in the final round, he missed a 12-foot birdie to win in regulation, three more birdie putts in the playoff, and then his final putt to send the great theater into another amazing scene, End quote. So this is where I think this performance and this back and forth really becomes interesting on another level for me. Because I'm a firm, firm, firm believer that losing doesn't necessarily equal choking. And very rarely are those two things going hand in hand. I think choking is very rare in the sense that a person was in a moment that they could have performed just a normal task that they can carry out and instead had no idea how to do that task. That's what choking usually represents for somebody like me. Um, And again, some people, they think differently. They think if you lost, well, then you choked. Oh, and Bryson, well, you you missed some putts down the stretch. Well, you choked. So as I expand the way that I I think, and I try to give insight into that, if you want to find choking within a round of golf, any round of golf, you can you miss an iron into the water. If you want to call it choking, you can. I didn't perform something that some. a lot of the times I can actually do. I missed a 12-foot birdie that could have won. Is that choking? If you want to call it that, you can. However, a 12-foot putt, <laughs> anybody who's had a 12-foot putt with something on the line knows how hard of an experience that can be, much less the fact that if nothing's on the line, tour average for a putt between 11 to 15 feet is a 30% Make probability. That is the average putt percentage probability on the PGA Tour. The very best putters on planet Earth. By this same token, if you want to find brilliance in any round of golf, you can. Uh, like if you want to talk about the actual performance on Sunday from Rice and Chambeau, you can find either one of these things. You can view this round however you really want to never as black and white as he choked and that's why he lost. It would never be as simple as if he had won saying he was brilliant and he didn't do anything bad and that's why he won. There is no more fickle game than golf. A game that revolves around beating a tiny ball around in the elements that you can't control, trying to roll it into a hole cut in grass that has a bunch of natural imperfections that has been stomped on all day by a bunch of dudes wearing spikes. There is no game more fickle than that. So Bryson amidst these misputts, uh referenced by the Associated Press. He's still got a lot of flashes of brilliance within that same performance. He's got an enormous putt on 16 in regulation, creeping down the hill for birdie on that par five. He gives the weird buffoon Bryson fist pump. Nonetheless, incredibly clutch putt that looked extremely hard, and he drills it. He comes back with that stub chip on 17. Okay, not good. He comes back on 18, nursing a one-shot lead. I can guarantee you that heart's pounding. The pressure's there. He drills a drive right down the middle. He hits a great approach to 12 feet. Cantley drills a bomb. Remember that match play style format and how you feel when you watch that go in. And in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, I can probably two put this and win. And now the next thing you know, he has that and he has to make an order to win. He buzzes right by the edge. We're going to a playoff. Now, this is where I want to take a pause and again, expand insight into the way that I think this comes from personal experience in the game of golf. This comes from just watching a lot of sports and a lot of golf. I'm a very, very, very big believer in the idea that once you start getting out beyond the 10-foot range, there is no distance. There's no difference, sorry, between a putt from let's say 15 feet that hits an edge, that buzzes an edge and finishes a foot behind the hole or that hits and goes in. There's literally no difference. I'm a very firm believer in that. That is a mantra that I continually repeat to myself within my own golf game. When I have a 20 foot putt and I putt it and I lip out, I go, that was a great putt. Uh, If I do that again, it will go down the next time a very firm believer that all of those putts are the same. A perfectly paced putt that buzzes right by the edge and finishes right after it or hits the edge and doesn't go in or hits the edge and goes in. Those are all the same putt. Remember, you're putting over a stretch of grass that has natural imperfections, divots, divots repaired, random bumbles that just happen when tiny blades of grass or anything can affect your ball, and then it's been stomped on by a bunch of people wearing spikes. Remember how fickle that experience can be, right? So when you engage with that idea, as I do within my own game, and on days where I threw the front nine, I've hit a ton of good putts and all of them have missed, I go, I just got to trust that those will start dropping. That's just how this game works. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not putting poorly. Yeah, maybe I have 16 putts through nine holes, but there's a different world where that's 11 putts just like that because that's how this game works. I keep believing that, I keep putting a good stroke on it, and inevitably those putts will fall. That is what I believe in my own game, and that is what I believe when I watch professionals play golf. So through that lens, Bryson misses some of these putts. Down the stretch, he makes other putts. Choking becomes a theme in how this is covered, uh, which again, I don't think is necessarily fair through the context of When I watched this event, did I feel like it was a choke job? Did I feel like Bryson had stuff in front of him where it was the most easy thing to do and he could do it with his eyes closed? Did I feel like that was there? He had a two-foot putt to win and he couldn't pull the trigger. Did he have anything like that? No. So I hear this through coverage of the event and I don't fully understand it when, again, you engage with this idea that I'm talking about when it comes to putting specifically. When you have a 12 foot putt and it buzzes by the edge, when you have a 15 footer and it hits the hole, as he did on one of the playoff holes in regulation on hole 17, the par three, lips out a putt that would have won from about roughly 15 feet. There's no difference between that putt going in or out. There just isn't. I'm a firm believer in that. When these putts are zipping by the edge on another day, that putt is going in. Not to mention when you expand it out from just putting individually. And you say, okay, this person, yeah, he's a total buffoon, total doofus. I get all that stuff. Nobody understands it more than I. Not a fan of the dude as a person. Um, But when we're talking about this performance through just simply the prism of choking and losing and whether or not those two terms are synonymous, the person who is now being called a choker because he missed these putts down the stretch, well, the same dude, he hits the clutch putt on 16 in regulation. The same dude... Blasts one out into the creek on one of the playoff holes on 19, and he's got a save par taking a penalty drop, and he hits a great approach in. He's got a putt down the hill from five feet that he has to make to extend, drills that in the back. It's the same person. It's the same person who on the second to last playoff hole, they're on the par 3, 17th, bunch of water short. He hits a 185-yard pitching wedge just short of the hole. Phenomenal shot. Cantley, to his credit, with nerves of steel, steps up right behind him and hits it inside of him to essentially tap in range. So now Bryson has a putt that he knows he has to make in order to extend the match up the hill. By every definition of the word, you would say, if you make that, that's clutch because your heart is pounding and you feel all of that pressure and all of that thought swirling around in your mind. He drills it to extend. Cantley goes and taps his in. They go to 18th. And we know how that finishes. Cantley bangs home an 18 footer. Up the hill, left to right. Bryson is up on the hill. I don't know, 10, 12 feet. He misses it coming down. That's the match. So for the week, when you talk about Bryson DeChambeau with his putter, very, 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 very good week. By strokes gain putting metric that I talked about with Cantlay, who had the most historic week in the history of the PGA Tour since they started tracking this in 2004. Bryson gains nine strokes on the field with his putter. Relative to the field, at his second best, trailing only Cantley and that incredible uh, once every 17 years style performance. Relative to the field, Bryson is three clear of the next closest person to him when it comes to strokes gained putting. So a great week in totality with the putter. And yet, down that stretch, he's got, Five putts inside of 20 feet, two of them on the last two holes of regulation, three of them on the first three playoff holes to win, and he misses them all. The most notable one, he has about a six-footer to win on 18 and playoff, and he misses it. That's the one that if you're looking at, you're saying you need to make that one. You just have to make that one. Similar putt to what he missed to shoot a 59 on Friday. So you think about this and you go, I don't know. The dude who gained nine strokes on the field with his putter who missed some putts, most notably that six footer. But, you know, a 12 footer he missed that could have won the match or that could have won the tournament. And in order to win, you have to make shots. We know that. The same time, a 12 foot putt, 30% probability for an average putt on tour. Do we categorize this all as choking? That's the question of this entire episode and this entire experience of watching Cantley and Chambeau go back and forth? Or really the question of any sporting event that is close and hard fought and comes down to one simple thing deciding it. In this case, it's Cantley drilling an 18-footer on the last playoff hole and Chambeau missing inside of that to lose. So is this choking when it comes to Bryson? I always skew towards no. That's just how I view sports. I always understand that all of this stuff is fickle, golf most of all. And on a different day, one of these putts just bobbles home and we're celebrating Bryson for the raw power and the driver off the tee and this great strokes gain with the putter throughout the week. And we're not talking about does he have chipping yips? Is this part of a larger pattern, pattern like the US Open meltdown or the St. Jude meltdown? It's just None of this is ever as simple as he lost, he choked. That's how I feel. That's how I always view sports. A lot of others, they obviously feel differently. Turn on ESPN or ESPN2 for any daytime programming and you'll see a a wide variety of people shouting at one another again and again about subjects just like this. And Aaron Rodgers loses against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and it's because Aaron Rodgers choked and he didn't run in. A touchdown on third down and goal with the clock dwindling. And that's why he choked in this game rather than saying, well, he threw for 350 yards and three touchdowns and was phenomenal and made high-level throw after high-level throw. It's never as simple as just did this person choke because they lost. Never. So we circle back to the theme and the question of this episode. What constitutes choking? There is not and will never be. I I can't give it to you. I can't provide it to you. There will never be a clear-cut answer to this question, clear-cut definition. Kind of got to find your way. Uh, Watch it. Make up your mind on what these things mean. I always like examining sports through this richer tapestry of how many crazy things go into a golf tournament being won or lost or a football game won or lost or basketball, hockey, go down the list. But in seeking to understand the way that choking, that word, Is used within the world of sports, I do feel comfortable saying there is at the very least one simple truth losing does not necessarily equal choking. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at ceo.com.